Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God. Attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest story ever told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction yeah. and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology.
two weeks ago and uh, have just really enjoyed reading the book. So she's going to join us here in about 25 minutes, and we're going to go through um, the content of that book. And I think you guys will really, uh, really enjoy uh, listening to uh, Miss Pierce. She is just a, a very, very smart lady and very well educated and trained and uh, just a, a wonderful heart, uh, biblical worldview, and there's certainly much that can be learned from her. So if you guys have not liked our uh, page yet on Facebook, you can go to Theology Matters with the Palouse. If you go to that Facebook page, you'll be able to find um, all of our podcasts that we've done really for the last three and a half to four years. And Theology Matters, for those who are new to the show, really focus on apologetics and uh, theological issues. And so we deal with uh, things like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, the occult, uh, atheism. One of the one of the fun things that we've been able to do on the show is host a number of debates uh, with atheists and theists, uh, some Roman Catholic uh, scholars and Protestant scholars on some of the um, issues that are debated within that uh, within that topic. And people really seem to enjoy the discussions. They're, they're always uh, done in, in good spirits and uh, try to produce more light than heat, shall we say. So if you've not liked our page, make sure you do that. For those in the uh, Rock Hill, South Carolina, and Charlotte area, April 22nd at uh, First Baptist Church in Fort Mill, we will be uh, hosting a apologetics conference, and the theme is overcoming. And we're going to be speaking. There's going to be three three different talks. Uh, I'm going to be doing a talk on uh, overcoming the hijacking of science, and really point to how uh, science really depends on a theistic worldview and those who want to lock the door and keep uh, theism and God out of the sciences really have to steal from God in order to do it. Uh, as Frank Turek so uh, powerfully points out in his book, Stealing from God. There'll be another talk on kind of the value of what is apologetics and kind of how does apologetics work in the culture. Our friend Adam Johnson will be giving that talk and he is uh, a guy that has really uh, done a lot of work with uh, Francis Schaeffer's uh, writings and just really been kind of a disciple, I think, of uh, Schaeffer, Schaeffer's work. And then lastly, there will be a talk on Islam. How do we interact with Islam in our culture today? What are some of the myths that are put forth often, and uh, what are some of the things maybe that we need to be concerned about? So that will be uh, April 22nd, uh, which I believe is Friday, Fort Mill Baptist Church. If you're around, uh, please come to the area, and uh, you will enjoy that. So let's see here before we jump into this here. We had uh, <clears throat> Easter celebrated this last Sunday, and we meant to do a show on the resurrection. We've done a few shows in the past uh, dealing with the historical uh, evidence and the reliability of the Bible as well as some of the historical evidence for Jesus. And uh, just 
everything going going on. Uh, it just uh, slipped my mind to plan a show to do that, so we didn't uh, didn't get the time uh, to do that. But we're going to discuss it a little bit here uh, before our guest comes on. Many um, may know if you if you know me, you know my story of how I became a Christian. I was brought up in Utah. Uh, my my family was Mormon. At a young age, uh, my father had uh, met a gentleman who was a pastor at his job, and my father had basically converted to Mormonism fairly recently. He had moved from uh, from New York. He was in the Air Force. He moved from uh, from the New York area down to Utah, met my mother. My mother was a lifelong Mormon. Uh, she actually was born in England and as a little baby traveled over to America, and they were, uh, you know, established in Utah. And so, as my father worked hard for us, he was a blue-collar worker, worked uh, at a plant, and worked third shift, him and this gentleman uh, began to have discussions about uh, the Bible, about truth, uh, about the existence of God. Um, What view is right? See, uh, a lot of times Mormons will tell you that they believe the Bible is the Word of God, and no doubt they're sincere when they say that. I don't say that to say these, that they're not sincere or anything. I think they probably, many of them, believe that. Uh, but my my dad's friend, the pastor, call him uh, Pastor Larson, uh, had studied some of Mormonism and knew what the claims of Mormonism was and, and knows just from the kind of the looking at the, the prophets, uh, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, and others, that Orthodox Christianity and uh, Mormonism were quite different on their view of uh, the nature of God, nature of salvation, uh, who the, the person of Jesus is, the work that Jesus did on the cross. And so they were able to have these discussions. And over a period probably of six to seven months, uh, the Lord did an amazing work in my dad's life and saved him, regenerated him. And, uh, of course, when you become a Christian and you uh, see the good news of the gospel, of course you want to tell everybody on a shouted from the mountains. And, of course, the first people you're going to want to tell is those whom you love the most, which is your family. So um, my mother was not as receptive to it at first. Uh, it took a while. You know, you're, you're brought up in a particular belief system, and you're surrounded by people that believe this. It, it just seems counterintuitive to, to leave this. Uh, but God in his sovereign grace opened her eyes and opened her heart, and she also became a believer. It affected my father so much, he went into the ministry and um, studied to be a pastor, studied for years, and uh, eventually was ordained and uh, did some work as an associate pastor. And uh, one time, At one point we had moved to Washington. He was doing some work up there uh, as an assistant pastor. For myself, though, I always had a lot of questions. I had a lot of questions on... Um, just a lot of the basic issues. See, my grandfather lived with us, and 
me and my grandfather were very, very close. Uh, he was really one of my best friends. Uh, he, he put the time in to, to love me, to you know, play with me, to care for me. And, uh, you know, we just had a lot of things, uh, you know, in common, even at that age. We both loved sports. Uh, and I love my grandfather very much. Um, one thing about him, though, is he was an atheist. He fought in World War II, and he had seen a lot of uh, probably very hard things, things that maybe today in today's society, society and cultures uh, we don't see so much. And he never was really given good reasons to believe that the Bible was the word of God or believe that Jesus had rose from the dead. And so uh, he rejected that. And he loved science. He loved science. I remember uh, going into his, into his little apartment there, and we would watch uh, Nova and Nature and He'd watch these things, and he would just uh, be in awe, basically, of science and be in awe of nature. And always thought there was this this major contradiction between science and faith, faith and reason. Uh, why would anybody believe this, you know, crazy book that has no scientific support or evidence for it? And this kind of rubbed off on me, I think, more than I even knew at the time, and so these these uh, seeds of doubt were kind of planted in me. What about evolution? What about the caveman? What about um, the reliability of the Bible? I remember he would give the illustration of the uh, the telephone game often. Bible's like the telephone game, you know, where you one person whispers uh, something to another and then another, and then by the time you get back around the circle what you originally said is, is completely lost and something totally different. And he thought this was how the Bible was, and he thought this was how, you know, the New Testament was translated. And I didn't know how to answer a lot of these questions. Now, of course, my, my parents, um, you know, they loved uh, my grandfather very much. This was my mother's, my mother's dad. And as I said, when you get saved, you want to share the gospel, especially with those whom you love. And so they would try and share the gospel with him, best they knew how. Uh, but he would often shoot it down. And at the time, you know, they really didn't have a lot of um, apologetics training. They knew some things. Uh, from Walter Martin. I remember my, my father reading a lot of Walter Martin in his books, uh, The Maze of Mormonism. But that debate is kind of dealing with people that already believe in God. It's not necessarily going to give you a defense for how to talk with, with atheists. And so the the arguments that my, my parents would use sometimes, you know, fulfilled prophecy or um, they would talk about the rapture that was upcoming, these kind of things. Obviously, it uh, wasn't very persuasive, shall we say, to my grandfather. And as I say, these things had uh, an effect on me as well. And so as I grew up, I think I just kind of walked away from the faith. I kind of grew out of the faith. I had a lot of questions, um, 
science was was one thing that I really loved. I loved uh, learning about dinosaurs, these kind of things. I just never saw how uh, any of this stuff fit into a biblical worldview. So I was probably uh, maybe 20, 22 at the time, between 20 and 22. And, uh, you know, at this time I had turned turned to drinking quite heavily. Um, I had dropped out of school actually in eighth grade, so I didn't even have a very good education at all. Um, I was uh, just in trouble a lot. Um, and again, you know, worldview matters. Uh, and what you think about ultimate reality, what you think about how you got here, uh, where you're going, etc., these things matter because it really is going to shape how you live, how you act, uh, how you think. And so I remember at the age of uh, 22, uh, flipping through the channels. It was right around Easter time, and I remember I was I was pretty uh, heavily inebriated. I was drunk, and as I'm flipping through the channels, there's this debate on uh, the Inspiration Network, and it was between uh, Gary Habermas and Anthony Flew. And uh, Gary Habermas is a is a Christian historian. For those who don't know, he uh, is a professor at Liberty University, and he's really looked at as probably the top um, resurrection scholar in the world. I didn't know this at the time. I see this you know this older gentleman sitting there, and he's got a Bible. I'm thinking um, he's a he's a preacher. He's a pastor. And the gentleman sitting across from him was an older gentleman. And he had a, a, a wonderful English accent. It was Anthony Flew. It reminded me a lot of my grandfather. Uh, here's this uh, Englishman, wonderful accent, uh, and an atheist, a hardcore atheist. I come to find out later, of course, that Anthony Flew was one of the top philosophical atheists uh, during his time. Several articles and papers and, and stuff. Um, kind of on the incoherence of, of theism. And at the time, uh, you know, I had had this idea that faith was nothing more than a blind leap in the dark. Faith was believing uh, without evidence. If you have evidence, if you have reasons, if you have these things, then it's no longer faith. And this was kind of the mentality that I had. And so what I expected was to see uh, the atheist use science and reason and logic and all these things to just dismantle the Christian worldview. Because this is really what I had seen growing up. I saw that Christianity, you know, this is, you go to church on Sunday and uh, you worship God and uh, not saying my parents were inconsistent at all, uh, but because they were very godly people and they lived a godly life. But when I go to school on Monday and I'm learning about, you know, basically materialism and evolution and how the world got here and the universe got here apart from, you know, divine intervention, it just seemed like the two didn't mix. It seemed like Church is the thing you do on the weekends, that's Bible, that's religion, that's that thing. But keep science, logic, reason, this is for the classroom. This is where, you know, the academics is going on. This is where we study things in the textbook and get our hands dirty. 
so it was a conflict for me, and I didn't understand how both, uh, you know, how how this was even really going to be a debate. And as I watched, as I watched this debate, in fact, it's on YouTube. You can you can look it up. You can watch it on YouTube. I was I was utterly amazed as I watched this debate to see Dr. Habermas uh, take the best, not only just take the best that uh, Dr. Flew had to offer. Uh, and really demolish his arguments, but put forth a incredibly positive case for the resurrection. I'd never seen this before. I'd never heard of this. Uh, the idea that there was actual historical evidence for Jesus outside the Bible, I, I remember it just it, it shattered me to my core the first time I heard that. Uh, I couldn't believe it because I, I had never been presented with anything like that. I thought this is just something that the Christians believe. So to see not only um, the Bible being defended and, and you know, saying its claims, uh, et cetera, about Christ, but to see that there was secular historians, and a secular world that actually corroborated a lot of this blew my mind. And Dr. Habermas is, is pretty known for uh, um, kind of putting together what's known as the minimal facts argument. And if you get his book, The Case for the Historical Jesus, which is a really good book, he's got uh, 12 of these minimal facts. Uh, but oftentimes there's mainly five that, um, that are used. And, and uh, I think these are kind of more, maybe more tested than the others. But as I listened to this minimal facts case we put out, uh, again, I was just amazed at how powerful, how concise, uh, and how really uncontroversial they were because the atheists pretty much grant these facts. And so I wanted to go through a couple of these uh, with you guys today, being that uh, you know Easter was uh, you know not long ago at all and still on people's minds. So... First fact that they give is that uh, the death of Jesus Christ by crucifixion. And if you go to the please convince me, please type it, uh, go to Google, type in please convince me minimal facts of the resurrection. My friend Aaron Brake actually wrote this article. And he, he goes through the facts and then he goes through the objections. Uh, but one of them, uh, the first fact is the death of Jesus by crucifixion. Perhaps no other fact surrounding the life of the historical Jesus is better attested than his death by crucifixion. Not only is the crucifixion account included in every gospel narrative, but it is also confirmed by uh, several non-Christian sources. These include the Jewish historian Josephus, the Roman historian Tacitus, the Greek uh, satirist Lucian of Samosota, as well as the Jewish Talmud. Josephus tells us that Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, condemned him to the cross. So what you see is uh, these non-Christians uh, from history corroborating Jesus dies on the cross. He goes on to talk a little bit here about John Dominic Crossan, who's a critical scholar, co-founder of the Jesus Seminar, states that he was crucified. Uh, that he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. So the first fact, is, again, is one that's 
it's pretty uncontroversial by New Testament scholars. Now, granted, if you go on the internet and you're you know reading internet atheists and stuff, they probably won't grant any of these. Uh, maybe they will. I don't know. But we're talking about uh, you know New Testament scholars, historians, those people that are in the field, and and not just uh, not just the Christians, obviously, because there's a lot of non-Christians in that field. Second fact is the empty tomb. Right? Something happened to the body of Jesus. Um, of this we can be sure. Not only was Jesus publicly executed in Jerusalem, but, quote, his post-mortem appearances and empty tomb were first publicly proclaimed there. This would have been impossible with a de- decaying corpse still in the tomb. And it goes on to say it would have been totally unJewish. Now, it's William Lynn Craig, not to say foolish to believe, but a man was raised from the dead when his body is still in the grave. So you have the empty tomb that is also uh, very good evidence and is evidence in the minimal facts. Third, you have the post-resurrection appearances. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, uh, you, you see Paul here, he's saying, for I deliver to you is of first importance, but I also received, uh, in which also you stand, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared more to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now. Uh, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to the apostles. Last of all, ultimately born or untimely born, uh, he appeared to me also. And, you know, he talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 how if Jesus is not risen from the dead, uh, then we're of, of all men most miserable. The the core of Christianity really is um, that Jesus rose from the dead. And if this can be demonstrated to be false, uh, then Christianity would be false. Some people will ask, how is Christianity, how could it be uh, shown to be false? How could it be falsified? Well, one way, I guess, would be to show that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. I guess if you could find uh, the bone box or something like that, the ossuary. So there are ways in which Christianity could be falsified. Um, the fourth minimal fact, the origin of the Christian uh, – actually, this is not a minimal fact. This is one of the facts they throw in the origin of the Christian faith. And uh, lastly, they also talk a little bit about uh, James and Paul being converted, who are both skeptics. We'll post this online, and uh, we'll let people check out that article. The minimal facts approach is a very good way to look at the resurrection uh, it's a very good way to defend resurrection. Again, when you're looking at the minimal facts, you're not uh, arguing necessarily that the, the Bible is inspired or inerrant. Um, you know, of course, I believe that it is, but uh, you, don't have to, you don't have to defend all of that as you're talking about the resurrection with the skeptics. You can just talk to some of these uh, minimal facts that, uh, the majority of New Testament scholars will agree on. And sometimes, you know, you even hear the charge that uh, Jesus never really existed. And it's really not, uh, certainly not popular uh, in, academ- in academia to say that. 
Um, but a good resource, I think, for that would even be something like Bart Ehrman's book. He just wrote a a book uh, probably two or three years ago defending uh, that Jesus was a historical person. Uh, Bart Ehrman is not a Christian, and he doesn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but he grants several of those minimal facts. Uh, in fact, you can watch that debate that happened at uh, my seminary, at Southern Evangelical Seminary, uh, and just... So, you know, that's a that's a good source to show uh, that Jesus really did live and uh, those minimal facts um, are pretty well attested. So let's do this. We'll go ahead and uh, take a break really quick, and then we will come back with uh, Nancy Piercy and talk about her book, Finding Truth. So stay with us. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One Minute Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Is science the only way to know something? Yeah, that seems to be a way that a lot of people assume uh, knowledge uh, comes forth, but it's really incorrect. First of all, we know that science isn't the only way to know something because science relies on logic and philosophy. So, for example, if I were to tell you that... Um, all dogs have a tail, and I have a dog. What do you know about my dog? It has a tail. If those premises are true, then the conclusion follows. Now, you don't know anything about my dogs, but if I say, all, let me qualify that, all my dogs have a tail, because some dogs may not. But if I say all my dogs have a tail and I have a dog, you know it has a tail. Yeah, my dog doesn't have a tail. Your dog doesn't have a tail. There you go. It has a nub. It has a nub, <laughs> and, and that's probably on purpose. Uh, but... So logic is one way we can know something. And science relies upon logic. Science can't work without logic. This is how we know if an experiment it proves the hypothesis or falsifies the hypothesis. True or false is, does it match? Is it the same? Uh, and that's based on logic. So science owes a debt to philosophy and logic. Science also owes a debt to theology. Because theologically, it was the Christians who said the world is orderly. Tomorrow, the laws of nature will be the same as today. Therefore, it is valuable for us to go and explore God's creation, that an orderly, thoughtful, rational God would make certain laws in the universe, and because of that, we can find them out. And it is truly Christianity that began the boon of the technological revolution and the scientific revolution, simply because we recognize, and by the way, the idea that lying on your... Uh, scientific results is wrong. Those are moral judgments. Those come out of Christianity. They don't come out of science itself. Science can do certain things, okay? Science can clone a human being. They can tell you how to clone a human being. They can't tell you if you should. The only way you know that is by looking at something like theology. As you're going through it, I, uh, had, I thought a question that atheists might ask, and it's kind of similar to the very first question that was asked, just pushing it a bit further. If a materialist asked you, why should I believe what you are calling general revelation is true rather than, than my materialism based on science, how would you respond to that? Yeah, it's all, it's all about what is the purpose of a worldview or a philosophy. Is the purpose of a philosophy to create castles in the air, nice little systems 
and hang up in the abstract realm? Or is it to explain the real world? If it's to explain the real world, then it has to fit the real world. You know, that's why we go to general revelation, which is you know, their, their own... And notice I kept stressing their own experience doesn't fit their worldview. It's not like I'm telling them, I disagree with you. We're pointing out that you yourself say that when you take your, like Steven Pinker, you take your lab coat off and you go home and you switch to a completely different paradigm. So it has to do with what is the purpose of a worldview. Most people want a worldview not, not for some abstract little logically coherent system. Yes. Like I kept saying, uh, the reductionist view is very logically consistent. If you start with natural causes alone, we will end up as being complex machines. That's logically consistent. But it's hanging up here in the abstract realm. doesn't fit the real world of even those who profess it. So I would press them to, to the question of why are you even, why are we discussing philosophy? We want a philosophy that explains how you and I actually have to live in this world. All right, folks, and that is Nancy Piercy, and I'm excited to be able to interview her today. Let me give you a little bit of an introduction for those who are not familiar with her. Uh, she was the Francis Schaeffer Scholar at the World uh, Journalism Institute, where she taught a worldview course based on her book, Total Truth, Liberating Christianity from its Cultural Captivity, winner of the 2005 ECPA Gold Medallion Award, for the best book on Christianity in society. She served as professor of worldview studies at Philadelphia Biblical University, during which time she wrote Saving Leonardo, A Call to Resist the Secular Assault on the Mind, Morals, and Meaning. She's also authored uh, the book How Now Shall We Live with Chuck Colson, which was a 2000 ECPA gold medallion winner. And then today, of course, we're going to be looking at her book, uh, Finding Truth. Uh, Ms. Pierce, are you there? I'm here, ready to go. <laughs> oh, we really, really do appreciate you coming on. Now, you're a, you're a professor at Houston Baptist University now, is that correct? That's right, Houston Baptist University, and I teach apologetics and uh, part-time and then part-time scholar-in-residence. So, um, and it's it's cultural apologetics, the kind of apologetics that was pioneered by Francis Schaeffer. So it's a little different from uh, the apologetics that's taught at most Christian colleges. It's it's it brings together the the intellectual side and the creative side. So it, it is a lot of fun. Wonderful. Um, maybe for those who are not uh, familiar with you, maybe you could tell a little bit of your story as to uh, how you became a Christian and how you got involved. Uh, with Francis Schaeffer, et cetera. And, you know, we got some time, so don't feel like you have to rush or anything. <laughs> well, it's, um, it is um, it is a story that starts when I was uh, about halfway through high school. I was raised in a Christian home, uh, but I was going to a public high school. I was surrounded by secular ideas in my textbooks, my teachers, most of my friends. Uh, so I just started asking a very simple, very fundamental question. How do we know Christianity is true? I wasn't rebellious. <laughs> I mean, people tend to think, you know, if you're asking questions, maybe it's because you secretly wish you could party more on, on the weekends. It had nothing to do with that. I just wanted to know, how can we know Christianity is true? And unfortunately, none of the adults in my life were able to answer that question. 
apologetics was not nearly as widespread as it is today. And um, my parents, my pastor, nobody seemed to have any answers. I had a chance to talk to a Christian university professor, and I said, why are you a Christian? He said, works for me. (laughs) I thought, that's it? (laughs) Don't you have any deeper reasons than that? Um, A little later, I had a chance to talk to a seminary dean, and I thought, okay, now I'm really going to get a good answer. And all he said was, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes, as though it was a psychological phase and I would outgrow it. And so after asking questions for a year or two, I said, well, you know, maybe Christianity just doesn't have any any answers. And if I don't have good reasons for something, I really can't say I believe it. Whether it's Christianity or anything, it really struck me as a, a matter of intellectual integrity, even though as a 16-year-old they didn't use words like that back then. But I thought it was a matter of honesty that if you don't have if you don't have good reasons for something, you shouldn't say you believe it. And I very consciously and very intentionally decided I would have to set my Christianity aside and start to research on my own what was what was true. I mean, what was the truth? And I um, and this is how I got into philosophy. It wasn't an academic interest or anything like that. It was. Um, I was asking questions like, how do I know the purpose of life? If there is no God, what is the purpose of life? If there is no God, what is the foundation for ethics? Or is it all relative? Um, if there is no God, what? Um, how do we know truth even? If there's no revelation ultimately from God, am I just stuck right. within my own head? You know, I, I, became, I became really rather rapidly a complete skeptic and relativist because I realized that if all we have is our own puny brain in the vast scope of time and history and space, then it seemed pretty obvious that we couldn't know any sort of universal, absolute, transcendent truth, that all we had was what was completely relative, you know, what what feels right to me. So I had I had come pretty quickly to absorb a fairly relativistic, secular outlook. Um, and it was a couple of years later when I was I was going to school in Europe because we had lived there when I was a kid, so I wanted to go back. And through, a, through some obscure <laughs> circumstances, I ended up at Labrie in Switzerland uh, and where Francis Schaeffer had his ministry. And Francis Schaeffer, as you know, was particularly good at reaching out to the disaffected young people of the 60s and 70s uh, and his, right. his form of... His, his form of uh, cultural apologetics was particularly attractive because uh, traditional apologetics deals with abstract arguments like the, for the existence, the existence of God or the problem of evil. But cultural apologetics looks at how ideas permeate a culture you know, through, through cultural forms like art and music and movies and even advertising. You know, how do ideas permeate a culture, not, not always through words, where they're easier to recognize, but through image and composition and storyline and so on. So this was really attractive to a lot of young people who um, would not normally maybe be interested in apologetics. At any rate, right. my first, I was actually there twice because the first time I didn't, did not become a Christian. Uh, it, was, it was a very attractive form of Christianity, and I was a little bit concerned that I might be drawn in just because it was so attractive. I had never met Christians who could engage with uh, secular ideas that I had adopted by that time. 
And I had never known Christians who were so culturally sensitive and valued the arts and creativity. Um, and and for many people, um, just the, the the Christian community that we we saw at Libri, most of us had never experienced before. So uh, after a month, I left. <laughs> I I fled, wow. went back to the states. Uh, but because of my time there, I had discovered there was such a thing as apologetics, and began reading not only Schaefer, but that's how I found C.S. Lewis. That's how I discovered G.K. Chesterton. Oh, okay. And a host, yeah, I had not run into any of these guys before. They just were not being read uh, when I was young. So uh, just through my own reading, strictly through my own reading, I finally was convinced that Christianity was true. And then I thought, okay, where do I find other Christians? Because I didn't know any. I wasn't tied into a church or anything. So I said, well, I knew some wow. back at Labrie. So a year and a half later, I went back, uh, and at that time I stayed for uh, four months. So I really got grounded in understanding Christianity as a worldview. So that's that's the, the background that explains why I'm still so passionate today about apologetics, because it was such an important part of my own conversion. I really had to answer the intellectual questions uh, before I could consider uh, whether Christianity was true or not, you know, I, I wasn't open to just the, the the gospel message on its own. I had I had absorbed too many secular ideas, and I had to have those answered first before I would pay attention to the the basic gospel message. And I think for many people today, you know, the more people are absorbed in secular worldviews, the more Schaefer, Schaefer used to call it pre-evangelism. The more you have to go oh. go through these um, sort of mental barriers they have before you can get to just the basic gospel message, which is the same for everybody, ultimately. Um, but some people take longer to get there, and that's where apologetics comes in. Yeah, you know, me and my wife are uh, missionaries with Ratio Christi, which is an apologetics ministry uh, on the college campus. And it's it's so much like you're saying. Uh, we see... These college students, they're they're brought up in their local church, and I mean they may be really good students at the at the church. You know, they're there every Sunday. They go to Sunday school, uh, and then they they go off to college, and they're being told that science has disproven the existence of God, the Bible's not reliable, just just these kind of things, and it, it troubles them greatly. And then they they talk to their parents. A lot of times, the parents, you know, they're not equipped to deal with the objections that's being brought against uh, them from the, from the teachers. So the parents get hold of the pastors, and unfortunately a lot of times the pastors are not equipped. And so they'll, they'll say things like, uh, you know, don't, uh, you know, just have faith and these kind of things. And we've just seen it over and over how this hurts uh, young Christian students and how um, just, I guess, the... Would you say there's been like a revival of apologetics that's really uh, caught on with younger people? Would you agree with that? I would agree that people are finally waking up to the fact that you really need apologetics, that you cannot just ignore the mind. We're, ma we're made in God's image to have a mind, to think reasonably and rationally, and we have to respect that. It's part of respecting the image of God in one another is to respect one another's questions. And I think the hardest thing is that um, generation, generational change happens so quickly today that 
uh, the questions of each generation are quite can be quite different. So that the, yeah. you know your kids might have very different questions from what you had when you were young. So it's not enough to say, well, well, this is what my mom always says to me. She says, well, Ma- Nancy, I didn't have those questions when I was young, <laughs> and and it's true, but that's true for everyone now. And as a result, it's become much more of a responsibility for parents to research what the current worldviews are, to educate themselves on their current worldviews so they can talk to their own kids. I think that talking to your own kids today has to be seen as a form of cross-cultural communication, and you have to learn that language. You know, you have to think of yourself as a missionary, even with your own children, in terms of learning their language, learning their worldview uh, and it's it's always been about worldview. I um I used to live in the D.C. area, so I had I had a lot of friends who were working in um, international relations and so on, and they were getting their graduate degrees in the subject. And they were fascinated. Many of them were secular people, and they were fascinated that I would when I would start talking about worldview because all of their classes are on worldview, not because they're wow. reading Christian books on the subject. But because in order to, they're being trained in order to communicate with another culture, and the language is the easy part. The difficult part is the worldview. It's the ideas and translating uh, concepts into the language of another worldview, and that's essentially what we face as Christians. We're, we're called to be ambassadors for Christ, and just like an ambassador, we need to do the same amount of intensive study and work on the worldviews of the people that we're trying to reach. Wow, that's good. One of the things I love about uh, finding truth, so I'm a, I'm a student at Southern Evangelical Seminary, and uh, our founder was, was Norm Geisler. So I've been really trained under that whole classical apologetic method, which I love. Uh, but one of the things I really love about your book um, is you – seems to do, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to be almost an integrated approach with some presuppositional apologetics, um, yet still give evidences and almost pull a little bit from classical. As far as apologetic methodology, how would you uh, describe, I guess, the cultural apologetics or the kind you do in your in your books? Well, you know, Schaefer was asked that, and, and, and my in, main influence was Schaefer. And he actually wrote about this at one point, and he said he, said he uses both. And here's how you put them together. Um, if, we, if we all were strictly logical, then a strictly presuppositional approach would work <laughs> because we would all be you know, accepting certain presuppositions and then working out the logical implications, and then living by them. The trouble is no non-Christian can actually live by his own presuppositions. Why? Because we're made in God's image, we live in God's world, and secular worldviews don't fit the real world. As uh, C.S. Lewis once said, the Christian and the atheist will have different views of the world. One of them is going to be wrong. One of them, his worldview is not going to fit the real world. And so as a result... You can you have to have both. You can you can analyze their presuppositions on the one hand, but on the other hand, you can also show them they themselves cannot live consistently with their own presuppositions because they're not going to fit the world, the real world. In in uh, in finding truth, you'll see that the, basically that's the approach that I take as well. It 
yeah. it goes farther than Schaefer in the sense of tying it to Romans one. You know, he never quite he never actually did that. But Romans one, I think, I think the presupposition versus if presupposition list versus evidential list, they're really the uh, um, sort of a complex way of talking about the two ways we test any idea. We test any idea by does it fit the real world? That's the evidential side of it. And we test it internally for logical consistency. And we do that in the courtroom. We do that in the scientific lab. We do that when, we, uh, when our kid is trying to explain to us why he didn't do his homework. <laughs> you know, we look, does, it, does it fit the real world? Does it hang together logically? And in, in Finding Truth, I show how Romans 1 gives a biblical basis for those two basic categories of arguments. And so they're not just a matter of, uh, well, this is how we tend to think. They're actually rooted in Scripture and have script, a scriptural foundation that explains why they work. Yeah, and, and pretty complementary. Mm-hmm, they're complementary. Yeah, yeah, pretty complementary. Very good. Well, before we jump into the book, um, real quick, you've mentioned the word uh, worldview several times. For those listening, maybe not familiar, uh, what is a worldview and who has a worldview? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, I think um, many people think it's just a philosophy, but philosophy is usually, for many people, philosophy has more of an academic meaning to it. It's what you go and you study at college uh, in philosophy classes. But everyone has a worldview in the sense that you have to make sense of the world. And it may be partly conscious, partly unconscious. Uh, but again, we're made in God's image. The biblical view of the human person would suggest to us that we can't just live and make choices with no grounding. We all want a reason for what we, for what we do. We all want to make sense of the world. And so however we do that, um, wherever we, wherever we might pick some of that up from our school, we might pick some of it up from the media, uh, we might pick some of it up from church. A lot of people have not really carefully thought through their worldview, but they still have one. And I think the responsibility for Christians, I think we are called to be more intentional. We're taught, called to try to be conscious of all the influences on our thinking and to evaluate them carefully and run them through a biblical grid. These ideas that we're picking up from our culture, are they really biblical? You know, are, are, is our thinking biblical? When we justify our actions and our decisions, do we, are we looking for biblical principles uh, to, to base our actions on? So worldview is it's informed a lot by philosophy just because all, all, all of our thinking is formed by philosophy. What the, what the elites say tends to, tends to filter down and affect all of us. So it's informed by philosophy, but it's a much broader word because it means what you and I, what ordinary people do to sort of make sense of their life. Very good. That helps. That, that kind of helps us figure out what a worldview is. On page 21, um, it starts uh, with, I lost my faith at an evangelical college. And you state, I was once invited to give a presentation on Capitol Hill on the application of Christian worldview principles 
in the public arena. During the question period, the audience hushed in surprise as a congressional chief of staff stood up and announced, I lost my faith at an evangelical college. Maybe you could kind of pick it up from there and just talk about that. Yeah, that was really a stunning uh, moment because here, here I had just given a talk on Capitol Hill on, on the importance of worldview, and um, you know, and this was especially for helping Christians who were Capitol Hill staffers who were trying to think through you know, how do we have a Christian worldview that informs our thinking on public policy. And so, so then at the end, this, this uh, chief of staff stands up and says, "Well, I lost my faith at a Christian college." Of course, I sought him out afterwards to to get his story. And he said, you know, the trouble is, even at many Christian colleges and and schools, Christian high schools, across all of Christian education, most Christian educators are getting their advanced degrees at at secular graduate schools, um, where they really don't have a realistic opportunity to work out what is the connection between their Christian worldview and the topics that they're teaching in the classroom. And so they, they get their degrees, and they may be very well educated and qualified in their field, but they may not have a Christian worldview in the, to teach in the classroom. In fact, there was an, a survey done of the CCCU schools, the uh, Coalition of Christian Colleges and Universities, these are, the, these are the evangelical schools. These are the more conservative universities. Only about half said of the faculty said that they were confident that they could give a Christian perspective on the field that they teach. Only half. Wow. When parents wow. send their kids off to Christian colleges, they don't, they're not expecting that only half the professors actually know how to teach from a Christian perspective. So that's what right. had happened to this chief of staff, his name was Bill Richterman, he's still a good friend of mine, um, he said, I, I, went to my, I went to my professors and I said, look, how do you put together your Christian convictions with what you're teaching in the classroom? And he said, not one of them could give him an answer. And the, impa- wow. the impact on him was that he gave up his faith. He said, well, I guess Christianity doesn't have any answers then. And his story was a lot like my own, except that he was a bit older he eventually discovered apologetics. He eventually discovered C.S. Lewis, Francis Schaeffer, G.K. Chesterton. And uh, as he puts it, um, he says, I studied my way back to God. So Amazing. this is, again, the, the importance of apologetics. But even at a Christian school, um, it doesn't let parents off the hook. <laughs> parents need to realize that they still need to be involved with their children because they're not they're, they're not necessarily going to get a Christian perspective at the local church, at the local school, uh, at the local Christian university, uh, just because not everyone, not as you said earlier, not everyone has the answers to the challenges of the secular world. In many Christian colleges, the professors go to church on Sunday, and they're sincere Christians. I don't mean to say they're not. They're sincere Christians, but when they come into the classroom, they just teach from the textbook. They don't know how to give the kids a Christian grid. So that's what yes, one of the things we're working on at HBU. We're really trying to be more intentional about teaching from a Christian perspective across the entire curriculum. Yeah, I, there, was, there was a quote that I had read uh, 
from you a while back, and uh, I think you were you were speaking of uh, in the church as well, uh, kind of how this is important and how uh, many times people churches will think that if you can have enough, um, I think it was you know emotional. Um, emotional games or just a lot of uh, emotional intensity, these are the things that uh, maybe they'll just, the the students will appreciate that so much or get so lost in those things, they'll kind of push the uh, objections and the questions and that that they've had kind of to the side. Uh, And so I just, you know, I I so resonate with what you're saying, not only in in the schools but also in the churches, Really, to have a biblical worldview, you 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 have to integrate um, apologetics and you have to integrate um, philosophy. I think in order to to have a good, sound, uh, robust biblical worldview. I think you're right. A lot of uh, church leaders tend to think if we can if we can hook kids emotionally, so that they stay with they'll stay with the church even through their intellectual questions. So they emphasize games and music and fun activities. And there's nothing wrong with fun. I like fun too. But they emphasize fun activities to the point where they think that this is what's going to hook kids and keep them in the church. Well, it doesn't work. We're made in God's image. We still have minds. In Finding Truth, I quote a study that was done on why why students leave leave their faith. It was done a study done on students who had left their Christianity behind, and they were asked why had they why had they left Christianity, and their answer was intellectual doubts and questions. The researchers themselves were surprised. They expected to hear things like emotional wounding, you know, broken relationships. They expected it to be these personal issues, and it wasn't. It was, you know, these things don't make sense to me anymore. I've been reading a lot of science, and I don't think Christianity is true because of science. Um, you know, I, I've had these questions from my classroom that aren't being answered. The majority of the answers were related to intellectual doubts. So that's, wow. that was surprising. Uh, I don't think most people realize that, and it really underscores that um, you know the the empirical data now is showing that what students really need most of all is apologetics. They need to have reasons. They need to understand how to answer the secular the, the claims of secular philosophies and ideas that they're facing every day in in the classroom from their friends and the media. They need to have answers to these questions. And it it turns out that even the empirical data now is starting to show this. Yeah, I've seen studies where they, they talk about how, and I've seen it just with myself at, at the college, that so many of the young students uh, as well, they're leaving for more, um, when they when they do start going back to church, they're looking for the traditional churches, a lot of them that have, um, you know, a, a root and history in Christendom. They're not wanting to be entertained. They're not uh, wanting the smoke machines and the fog, you know, the, Bob Heights and all this stuff, they want um, a deeper sense. Uh, I, I think it was a, 
they did a segment on, uh, I want to say, maybe it might have been the 700 Club or CBN, but just about how Anglicanism was making this uh, big return, especially among young people, and how surprised they were to see uh, that, that uh, the young students were, were so excited and enthralled with uh, this historic Christian faith. And so it's, it's like you say, I think maybe sometimes we uh, don't give the, the young people enough credit. Maybe they do want to use their minds. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point because it is the historical churches. Uh, I was raised Lutheran, so I had I had all the advantages of liturgy, uh, and it has it has been the the historical historically rooted liturgical churches as a rule have been more oriented toward uh, education and towards retaining um, a stronger sense of theology and doctrine, uh, catechizing the young people. Do you even do we remember that term? <laughs> you know, uh, you know, that that, that the, I had when I was young. I had to learn to mem- I had to memorize vast quantities of the catechism. Uh, I had to memorize hymns. I had to memorize the creeds. I had to memorize the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments. Um, of course, it wasn't quite enough because I didn't get apologetics. <laughs> but when yeah. I came back to Christianity, I did have a rich understanding of what it meant. I ha- I had been well educated in theology. And and that is part of addressing the need of 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 um, the human mind. In other words, addressing the need of young people to understand it, have have deep understanding of theology, and not just light little um, homilies on practical implications. You know how how to have a better home life, how to connect to your spouse better, how to lose weight, <laughs> how to you know so many of the. <laughs> Evangelical churches have little practical sermonettes instead of giving yeah. deep theology. So I, I I used to teach a church a class on church history. Um, I taught I used to teach uh, homeschool high school, and one of my courses uh, was church history, and it was interesting because the students several times I had students say when I started this class if you would ask me is Christianity mo- uh, mostly emotional and mostly intellectual, I would have said, it's all emotional. It's just all emotion. That's all it is. And now that wow. we go to church history and learn the theology and learn the history of doctrine and learn about all the theological controversies in the church and understand where the concept of the Trinity came from, understand the controversy over justification and you know, these, these, these central doctrines, he said, now I realize Christianity is mostly intellectual. That it's you know got wow. deep and profound and challenging and interesting intellectual content, as opposed to being just an emotional high that you get every Sunday and then go go home and it wears off during the week. Wow, good stuff. Um, let's see, page page forty two uh, in the book, you talk about the five strategic principles. You say uh, in Romans one, Paul has spelled out fascinating diagnosis of idols. How can we apply what we've learned to analyzing worldviews? Uh, and then you say from the text we can extract five strategic principles. So let's maybe look at these principles, I guess, individually uh, from, and again you're using kind of Romans 1 as the outline. So talk us, uh, talk us about principle 1, identifying the idol. Yeah, I really like this because I'm teaching students, and a lot of times when they're first introduced to the world of ideas, philosophies, and so on, 
they can get overwhelmed. I certainly was for many years when I first started getting involved in, in looking for answers as a, as a high schooler. And Romans 1 teaches us that there's, there's a very simple starting point. Romans 1 says those who reject the transcendent creator will exchange the glory of God for something in creation. In other words, they create idols. You can think of an idol as anything that somebody puts in the place of God as the ultimate reality, as the self-existent, self-caused, uh, first, first cause of everything else. And so um, to, to make this practical, um, the, most, the most prevalent worldview in, academic, in the academic world today is materialism. Materialism starts with matter. It says matter is the eternal, uncreated, self-existent source of everything else. So matter is a God substitute. Matter is part of creation, just like Romans says. Matter is part of creation. So if you make that the ultimate reality, you have essentially turned it into an idol. And so the vast majority of secular thinkers that are taught in the classroom today, whether you're in science and it's Darwinism, whether you're in psychology and it's Freud, whether you're in social sciences and it's Foucault, they're all materialists. And so they all start with matter as their idol. And so this is fascinating because it means that the best way to sort of get a handle on what really drives any worldview, any philosophy, is to ask, what's its God substitute? What does it put in the place of God as the ultimate reality? Because that will shape everything else. Obviously, if you're a materialist, you have to deny anything in the human being that goes beyond matter. You have to end up denying, if you're logical, you're going to end up denying that, that there's such a thing as free will, that there's such a thing as soul or spirit or even mind. These days, these days the cutting-edge issue in philosophy is consciousness studies. Is consciousness even real? Because philosophers wow. say, well... The, the human brain is essentially a computer. That's the, that's the current popular view, the analogy to a computer, that thinking is like computing. You're essentially, a, a, as, as Steven Pinker at Harvard puts it, he says, your brain is essentially a complex data processing machine. Well, if you're a data processing machine, is there any place for free will? No. Is there even any place for consciousness? After all, my computer works perfectly well without consciousness. So why are we conscious? And the philosophers say, well, we're not. We're not. That's an illusion created by natural selection. You think you're conscious. Why? Because it does make it easier to live. If, if, um, If my son Michael goes to the refrigerator to get something to eat, I can explain his behavior by saying he feels hungry and he thinks, there's food in the, in the fridge. But in reality, things like feeling and thinking are not real. There's really just neurons firing in your brain. But that would be far too complex for ordinary conversation. And so natural selection has selected for the illusion of consciousness because it makes it more efficient for us to interact with one another in day-to-day life. So this is where the um, – if you identify the idol – you will immediately be able to figure out all the other consequences and 
the logical implications, the whole rest of the philosophy makes sense because there's, hey, there's your presuppositionalism you asked about at the beginning. <laughs> once you've got that yeah. presupposition down, once you've identified the most central presupposition, it, what does it put in the place of God? Everything else will follow logically from that initial assumption. So it's a wonderfully powerful tool that we can give young people so that they can be better critical thinkers of the ideas that they're hearing in the classroom, in the media, and so on. Yeah, it's <clears throat> I really like it as well because it just shows also, in some sense, it seems to be um, demonstrates that their views are self-defeating. Uh, you know, if it's just this, you're a machine and you're programmed, and the consciousness is an illusion, and they're, they're writing these books to convince you it just seems like um you don't think that or you wouldn't be uh trying to give arguments and convince us that it's true and i guess i'd also wonder how do you even uh you know they're saying uh you you'd mentioned that they say natural selection is just given us this illusion and maybe tricked us how can you trust anything in your mind if that's what's going on how do you know that yeah true? yeah yeah, I agree with you. It's kind of a god of the gaps for the secular person. Anything you can't explain, well, that's an illusion, you know, selected for by natural selection. It, it's it's too ad hoc. It doesn't really work uh, logically. It, you you could throw it up any time you run into something you can't understand. That, that yet you cannot explain within your own worldview. And you're right uh, that you can't really live with this worldview. Then this is this is where you know those two sides come in. The presuppositionalism means you find their initial presupposition, and you work out its implications. The evidentialist side comes in when you say, okay, now let's see if you can really live that way. I quoted Steven Pinker saying uh, the human brain is just a complex data processing machine. But in his book, How the Mind Works, which is a best-selling book, so this is not something only academicians are reading. This is best-selling. The general public is reading this stuff. I'm being influenced by it. And in that book, he literally says, uh, in, the, in the lab, when I'm working in the lab, I treat human beings as complex data processing machines. But when our work winds down for the day and we take off our white lab coats and go home, and this is a direct quote, we go back to treating one another as dignified human, wait, what was it? It was dignified free agents. So he essentially wow. admits that he can't take his worldview home and, and out of the lab. He can't take it into real life. You can't treat your wife like a complex data processing machine. <laughs> you know, oh, you'd better not <laughs> if you want to stay married. <laughs> that's right. And he, yeah, he, that's... Acknowledged, he acknowledged that he had to shift to a completely different worldview when he went out into the real world. Now, you and I would say to him, doesn't that serve to falsify your philosophy then? If you can't live it out in the real world, I mean, what is a philosophy for? I like that opening quote that you used where, where I was answering somebody's question with exactly this, this, this counter question. What is philosophy for? If it's not to explain the real yeah. world, what good is it? So this is where Romans yeah. 1 says, gives us sort of a, a starting point. It says, find the idol but then show them that they does not fit the real world. And not just that I disagree with it. That, that's not very, very effective. If I say, well, you know, my worldview doesn't agree with yours, so what? You know, that just means we don't agree. But if I can show him that he cannot live with the implications of his own worldview, 
Now, that's powerful. That shows that his worldview isn't enough to explain his own experience. That becomes a very powerful form of apologetics. Yeah, because it's, it seems as though, um, yeah, if, if Christianity is true and if the Bible's true, then these other worldviews are not going to be able to uh, pass that test. So every other system is going to have these contradictions and unlivable and uh, just presuppositions that just fail them. And uh, that's the beauty, I guess, of, of Christianity is you can really put it to the test and use it to put others other systems to the test as well. And the nice thing about it is you can you can use these with people who don't already believe the Bible. You know, we're not stuck with just saying, well, but the Bible says. Because right. Romans 1 is giving us general revelation. These are things that, this is evidence for God that is accessible to all human beings. All human beings can judge by their own experience. Um, uh, well, let me give you one ex- another example. Uh, they all deny free will as well. The, if you're a complex biochemical machine, you have no free will. Okay, does that line up with what we all know about human nature? Of course not. No one lives like a robot. We all make choices from the moment we wake up in the morning. In fact, there's one philosopher, John Searle at USC, who jokes, if people deny free will... Then when ordering at a restaurant, they should say, uh, just bring me whatever the laws of nature have determined that I will get. <laughs> so he himself recognizes, he's, you know, and he's a materialist who's, who's honestly wrestling with these questions. You don't have to be a Christian to recognize that materialism does not fit what we know about human nature. So anything, any philosophy that exchanges the glory of God for something in creation is also going to exchange the image of God for something in creation. Because it starts with something lower than God, it leads to a lower view of humanity. And that means you can test it against their own humanity. And so philosophies like materialism fail because they don't match human nature as everyone experiences it. It gives you a broad approach you can use even with people who don't accept the Bible. Yeah, with with the free will as well. If they have the you know a crime committed against them, you know if one of their family members were murdered or someone stole from them, they would want justice, uh, and that would just seem to go against the whole idea of, of no free will. Because this the you know chemicals reacting the laws of physics and chemistry in their brain, not uh, free will choices. But if someone wrongs them, they don't act like that, do they? Oh, yeah, I mean, there's a great uh, quote in, in my book, Finding Truth. I give a quote from Richard Dawkins. Dawkins, of all people, you know, one of the great, great, uh, greatest of yeah. the new atheists who makes a living, you know, attacking Christianity. At any rate, he actually has proposed that since we're just robots, essentially, um, what does he call us? He says we're survival machines. We are robot vehicles blindly programmed by our genes. Um, but he was, and as a result, he wants to overhaul the entire criminal justice system. You talked about people who are victims of crime. Well, he wants to overhaul the whole justice system so that you don't punish people, you, you just rehabilitate them. In fact, um, he, he goes on and on about this in, a long, uh, in an article. 
he refers to a British comedy show, Faulty Towers. Do you know Faulty Towers? It's um. I'm not familiar can, with it. Yeah, look it up online. You can watch some of the episodes. They're very, they're very funny. Um, but there was a famous episode where uh, the the main character, whose last name is Faulty, the program's named after him, um, is dry, trying to start his little red car, and the little red car won't start. So he, first he gives it a scolding, then he counts to three, then he picks up a tree branch and starts thrashing it, and it always gets a great laugh because, of course, you know he's treating it like a child who's being recalcitrant, and, and then then Richard Dawkins says, "Why don't we laugh at a judge who sentences a criminal? Because after all, people are just complex machines." They don't have any real choice in what, they're, in, in what they do, in their behavior. And he says, when a machine breaks, we don't punish it, we fix it. And his point is that we have wow. to get rid of the entire criminal justice system. So I had, a, I had a young intern on Capitol Hill who'd read my book. And when, um, when um, Richard Dawkins, this was when I was in Washington, D.C. still, and this young intern was working for a think tank on, in D.C. And he went to hear Richard Dawkins when Dawkins was speaking at a local bookstore promoting his latest book. And so he decided to press him on this issue. This is great. He said, um, well, you're saying that we don't, have, you know, we don't have free will, which means we don't praise people, we don't blame people for their actions. Is that what you're saying? And, uh, and Dawkins says, yes, that's right. And he said, well, does that mean we should not – be really giving you credit for this book that you're promoting because you didn't really write it. <laughs> you know, you're just a robot <laughs> writing what natural natural causes make you write. And he Dawkins wow. sort of he backtracked. He backtracked. Um, the young man said, "Isn't that a contradiction to your own to your own philosophy?" And Dawkins said, "Well." Well, yes, you're right. Um, he said, look, I am emotional. He said, I do respond emotionally, and I do praise people, and I do blame people for their actions. He said, but it's an inconsistency, and you're right, it's an inconsistency with my worldview. But, and this is a direct quote, it's an inconsistency we sort of have to live with, otherwise life would be intolerable. So he was admitting that we cannot live consistently with his own worldview, the worldview he was promoting in his books, because life would be intolerable. In other words, you know, we have to have a Christian worldview for life to be tolerable. And it was an amazing admission. Uh, the, the young man was, had, a, had a hidden microphone, so I got to hear the whole thing. <laughs> oh, uh, wow. And, and I, so it was, okay. Wow. So it, it was recorded. recorded and I put wow. it in my book, in Finding Truth. And, but, yeah, it was just another example of a high-profile person who's promoting a worldview that when confronted, he admits he cannot outlive himself, that it would be intolerable. And I, I think the power of Romans 1, too, is it's just how um, people, I think, have this, these ideas that scientists are just these logical machines, there's no emotions, there's no bias, they're just neutral, give me the evidence and I will make whatever choice. And you see that's just not how it is. And how when God gives us over, you're willing to write books, you're willing to write, you know, make uh, promotions and, and 
everything attacking a worldview and promoting a worldview that you can't live with, you could never live with. I think that's a good point because, um, you know, young people today are getting a lot of the information from websites. And atheist websites, uh, I'm sure you've been on them too, and you've probably seen this. One of the most common memes on atheist websites is, atheism is not a belief. Atheism is merely the lack of belief in God. Well, Quiddy's yeah. is one that's not true. You know, if if nobody can think without some starting point, without something as the ultimate reality that everything else comes from, and that something is the, it's God's substitute. Romans 1 is right. If you reject the transcendent creator, you're going to exchange it for something in creation. You know, for most atheists, it's, it's some form of materialism or naturalism. So matter is the ultimate reality or nature is the ultimate reality. And it, everyone, and that's true of everyone. No matter how much you say, no, no, I'm, I'm neutral, I, I don't have any ultimate commitments. And I run into atheists who do say this. And you just, yeah. you, I find I just have to press them to realize, no, you would not even be able to think logically, rationally, coherently if you don't have some starting point. And you have to kind of press them backwards to find out what their starting point is. But that's, I think you've got a good point, and that is we have to help Christians not to be intimidated by the claims of scientists or secularists who say, well, you know, secularism is neutral. Religion is biased. You guys are biased. Yeah. Secularism is neutral. No, secularism is just is usually a cover for some deeper ontological commitment to usually naturalism wow. or materialism. That's really good. Principle two, uh, this is another good one. Um, identify the idol's reductionism. Yeah, reductionism just means reducing the value or status of something. And so the point here is that in order to test a worldview, we've got to bring it down to our own experience. So, uh, and here's where um, the principle is, any philosophy that exchanges the glory of God for something in creation will exchange the image of God for something in creation. And so if you put matter as your God substitute, you will recast humans in the image of matter. And that's what we've been talking about, how humans then get reduced to complex biochemical machines. And so reductionism just means you will always have a lower view of the human person. Well, as a result, that gives you an opportunity to test it. Here's how um, there's one Christian philosopher, he's French, his name is Gilles Saint, and he put it like this. He said, the cause has to be equal to the effect. So because human beings are capable of thinking, the first cause that created them must have a mind. Because human beings are capable of choosing, the first cause that created them must have a will. Or to sum it up, because human, a human being is a someone and not a something, the first cause that created them must be a someone and not an impersonal force like the blind forces of nature, like uh, materialism or naturalism tell us. And so anytime you have something less than human, uh, anytime you reduce humans to something less, it no longer 
no longer fits the reality as we know it. So that human, if you, once you decide human beings are made in the image of matter, for example, you're going to end up denying free, free will. You're going to end up denying mind, soul, spirit, consciousness. You are going to end up treating humans like robots. And it just doesn't fit even their own experience, the experience of those who are promoting this. So reductionism becomes a really um, important second step because that's what allows you to test the philosophy. You test its view of the human person against what humans have always known about themselves universally throughout all time and space, throughout all history, uh, universal human experience. So once you figure out how does it reduce humans to something less than the image of God, that opens a door where you can show that it doesn't fit human experience. It doesn't match human nature as we all know it. Very good. Um, Nancy, let me ask you a question. Um, do you mind taking if we have a few phone calls, or would you rather would you rather not? Oh, that's fine. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, I'm sure there's uh, several people that would love to talk with you. So uh, those who would like to call in, you can call in uh, to 760-542-3907. 760-542-3907. A rare chance to talk to uh, Nancy Piercy and going over her book again, Finding Truth. Principle three, you have test the idol. Uh, does it contradict what we know about the world? So this is seems to be a very important uh, principle. Yeah, actually, we've sort of got into that with the last question, because once you determine right. the reductionism, its low view of the human person, then you can test it against the real world. But let's take another example. That might help clarify. Let's take the opposite end. Instead of Western materialism, how about Eastern pantheism? How about going to the other extreme? Um, Eastern pantheism, what does it say about the human person? Okay, first of all, you identify the idol. What does it put in the place of God? Well, instead of a transcendent creator, pantheism suggests that there's sort of an imminent spiritual force or essence that permeates all of the world. Right? God, God is nature, nature is God, uh, and God is really sort of a spiritual force or substance that permeates all things. Well, what's the reductionism then? What's its view of the human person? Well, if God is this one universal spirit, then human beings are just part of that universal spirit, right? So that's where you hear people say in the New Age movement, you are all God, you are all divine, the divinity is within you. You've heard those kind of phrases. Right. But it also means, though, that... Your individuality is an illusion. That's the source of evil in Eastern thought, that you really are part of this universal divine spiritual substance. It's not a, it's not a personal God. That's why you, it's hard to find the word for it. It's not a personal God who loves you, who interacts with you, who communicates with you. It's, it's a non-personal substance. It's more like the force in Star Wars. You know, it's a force that permeates things. And you, your individuality is really your problem. If you realized that you were part of God, you would realize that your individual identity is an illusion. In fact, in Hinduism, it's actually called Maya, M-A-Y-A, which means illusion. You really are not an individual. You think you are, and that's a source of evil, greed, oppression, because you, you think that you 
are an individual and you want things for yourself. But if you would only realize that you are God, you are really not an individual at all. You're part of this universal ocean. You're just a drop dissolved into the ocean of Godhead. Then you wouldn't be. Then then you would not be selfish, and all the evils of the world would perish. So it's it's you, the human person. Then is that you really are not an individual, and you really should give up your individual identity. So there was. Um, there's a famous poem that's in a lot of poetry anthologies, it was, which was written by a Chinese poet. So he's expressing a pantheistic worldview. And it talks about uh, sitting on a mountainside and as evening falls. And the last two lines of the poem go like this. We sit together, the mountain and I, until only the mountain remains. In other words, he's dissolved himself into nature. It's a very dehumanizing view. It's essentially saying yeah. you have your individual identity has so little value that you really should just dissolve into the side of the mountain. You should dissolve into the rocks of the mountainside. So it's, there's the reductionism. It has a very low view of the individual. It says that really your individuality is your problem and you should get rid of it. Okay, so how would you and test I, that then? Yeah, how do you test yeah. that? <laughs> Well, you test it by saying, who can live with that? <laughs> who can actually live with the idea that you have no personal identity and, you know, you are ju- you're really just um, speaking for this universal essence that's within you? It it's, has such a low view of the human person that you can see why Eastern and Asian countries did not originate schools and hospitals and <laughs> humanitarian efforts. That They let people just die in, the, in Hinduism, you know, you, in Hindu cultures, people were just dying in the streets until Mother Teresa went over there and started pulling them off the streets and taking care of them. Uh, wow. Eastern cultures have never had a high view of the human person and have, as a result have never had those kind of humanitarian institutions that we just take for granted in the West. And that primarily would come, from a, I guess, from a Christian uh, worldview. The Christian worldview says each individual is made in the image of God and has inestimable value. Absolutely. Right. Your individuality is given to you by God. It's part of the image of God. I just don't know why Eastern worldviews are at all appealing. I mean, I went through my Eastern religion stage, too, in the 1970s when it was, <laughs> when it was first big. <laughs> but I came to see that what we want most is to be affirmed for who we are as an individual. We want our unique identity affirmed. That's what we all crave. That's what we all ache for. And we can only do that if the ultimate reality is a person, that we are persons made in the image of a person. A non-personal force or essence will never affirm who you are as a person. It will never give you a personal relationship. It will never affirm your personal identity. It will always say that your personal identity is a problem. Smash it out. And it leads to very different political implications, as you can imagine. If the group, at least to, to the idea that the group or the collective is what matters, not the individual. Um, but, yeah, it, this Christianity affirms your individual identity as being made in the image of a personal God who, who interacts with you and loves you and cares about you and who made you the absolutely unique individual that you are. It's just as amazingly different in its implications. 
and, and it's it's um, just pounded home from Genesis to Revelation that that uh, truth. If you were to test this particular uh, principle um, with uh, not just uh, like like pantheism or materialism, but even with other forms of theism, right? I'm thinking like Islam. Uh, you you could also see um, the difference there as well. Islam is interesting because um, it's harder to see how it fits the Romans 1 description because it doesn't make a god out of something in creation, right? Because it has, it was right. influenced by Judaism and Christianity, and it does accept part of the Jewish scriptures and part of the Christian scriptures. It does teach a transcendent god, but it does still fit the Romans 1 um, critique in the sense that it does still lead to a lower view of the human person. Why is that? Right. Because it doesn't have the Trinity. The Trinity tells us that God is one and three, that God is one and one God and yet three separate persons. And so it values our individuality. What happens if you have a Unitarian God? Islam is a Unitarian God. Right? It's, there's no Trinity. It's it's essentially what we in the West have called Unitarianism. There's just one God. In fact, it tends to really stress that. Um, in, in Finding Truth, I quote, I quote some Islamic scholars and theologians who say um, the, the most important quality of God, in the, according to the Koran, is his unity, his oneness. The, 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 that's, mm. the, that's the very essence of God. What, what happens then if you, if you stress just God's oneness and don't have, and don't have the Trinity? Well, you don't have the qualities of relationship within the Godhead itself. Think of some of the qualities associated with a relationship. Only if there's a relationship within God himself, within God's own character, can you have attributes like love. Love takes two people. <laughs> Sympathy, self-giving, communication, um, you know, giving and taking, sharing, self-revelation, union, communion. In fact, uh, the, the best way to keep this in mind is I, there's a wonderful quote from C.S. Lewis. And he says, all, all sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. But they seem not to notice that the word God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Because love is something that wow. one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the made, world was made, at least he was not love. Or even if he had the capacity to love before the world was made, he was unfulfilled. And therefore he would need the world, he would be dependent on the world, in which case that's not really the God of either Christian, Christianity or Islam. So right. the Trinity, it turns out, we, you know, we tend to think of the Trinity as sort of a, an odd, obscure doctrine that we pay lip service to, but we don't pay much attention to. But it is crucial in explaining why Christianity has a God of love. Because only a God of love can be truly personal, and therefore only a God of love can explain why we are persons. Only a God who has a trinity, who is a trinity, can be personal, and therefore only a God of, with a trinity can love us. And see, we're personal beings. It, it, the, the philosophical word personal um, doesn't mean warm and friendly. You know, that's, that's how we use the term in conversation. It doesn't mean warm and friendly. It means 
a being that's capable of of love, choice, communication, rational thought, and so on, as opposed to a blind automatic force like the forces of nature. Think of the force of gravity. You know, it doesn't think, it doesn't choose, it just acts. And so a personal being like humans, how do we explain where they came from? Every other worldview ends up with a non-personal God substitute. Every other one, every other worldview ends, or religion ends up with a God who's not personal, or at least in the case of Islam, not fully personal because it doesn't have the Trinity. And so none of them can either explain why personal beings emerge because, you know, water doesn't run uphill. You, the cause has to be right. equal to the effect. So if you have a non-personal starting point, whether it's Western materialism, whether it's Eastern pantheism, whether it's Islam, they're all non-personal. They cannot explain why we are personal beings. And as a result, they all end up squashing our personality. They all end up being reductionistic, denying some elements of human personality and treating us as less than personal. And that gives us a chance as Christians to make a very positive argument. Instead of, you know, the, the classic revivalist message was you're a sinner you need to get saved <laughs> and people began to say well that's kind of a negative a negative starting point isn't it that we're just sinners <laughs> that we're just you know that we're, that we're guilty we're you know, these abject uh, pathetic creatures but we can now have a very positive argument we can say wait a minute we have a much higher view of the human person we have a much more humane view of the human person than any of these other worldviews because they all start with a non-personal starting point, and therefore they all in some way deny that we are personal beings. They all reduce humans to something less than our full humanity. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's one of the things that is so attractive uh, about the Christian faith is that it really does it, and it, it it's it's livable. It's what we see in in reality. Principle four, you uh, have um, does the uh, uh, does it contradict itself? Does it contradict itself? Yeah, what I like about the Romans one uh, strategy that I draw out in finding truth is that you can you can be absolutely confident that it will always apply. I mean, it's scripture. It's scripture, right? So it will always apply. And this this one is another is another example. We will we can be confident that every non-biblical worldview is going to be internally inconsistent. It will have internal contradictions. Why is that? Because a reductionist view of humanity a view that reduces humans to something less than their full humanity, is going to include the mind, the cognitive faculties. It will include reason, rationality. But when it reduces reason to something less than reason, how does it support its own case? Well, it has to use reason, right? Arguments. So when it discredits reason, it undercuts its own case. It's self-refuting. So, so let's take materialism or our best example since it's the prevailing view on the academic campus. Materialism reduces thinking to neurons firing in the brain. For materialists, humans don't believe something because you're rationally persuaded it's true, but because of the, neural, the, the patterns of the neurons firing in your brain. Well, what does that imply for a materialist's own view? You know, to be consistent, they have to apply the same reasoning to themselves. 
because their own materialism then, they have to say, is not a product of rational thought either, but just neurons firing in the brain. Well, in that case, why should the rest of us give it any credence? Uh, an apologist named Greg Kokel, who I'm sure you know, he says, this is how a worldview commits suicide, because when its own definition of truth is applied back onto itself, it discredits itself. It slits its own throat. It shoots itself in the foot. In the, um, in the technical term for that is self-referential absurdity. So you can see why my students really like that phrase. They prefer to say it commits suicide. And the Romans 1 tells you why it works. And it also tells you how to apply it to any worldview. See, I, I read a lot of philosophy and apologetics, and you see this argument used all the time, but nobody tells you why it works. It's as if it was just floating out there in the intellectual ether, and we just can, all, we can just use it when we want to. No, right. Romans 1 tells you why it works. It's because every non-Christian worldview is reductionistic. You find the reductionism, that's the point where it will commit suicide. And so, yeah, I love this, uh, this illust- yeah. illustration you have on page 49. Uh, it says, to illustrate how the argument works, let us use the example of materialism again. Uh, materialism reduces thinking to biochemical processes in the brain, akin to the chemical reactions in digestion. But digestion is not something that can be true or false. Uh, it's just a biological fact. Thinking is reduced to brain processes, and our idea, our ideas are not true or false either. And then you talk about how this is how it commits suicide. It's, it's just a great, uh, great analogy. And it, and you can take almost any ism and 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 apply it as well. Like think uh, think of Marxism. If your students go to any university campus, especially in the social sciences, Marxism is still very big. Um, if not classic Marxism, then cultural Marxism. And Marx, what does Marx say? Marx says, you don't believe what you believe because you're rationally persuaded it's true, but because of your class interest, right, your economic interests. Well, to be consistent, he has to apply that to his own views. Did he come up with it just to defend his own economic interests? Well, in that case, why should the rest of us pay any attention to it? You know, he's, he's, it undercuts itself. Or Freud. Freud is huge, had a huge impact on the modern mind. A huge, he said, um, you don't believe what you believe because you're rationally persuaded it's true, but because of your psychological history, especially sexual repression. Well, what does that mean for Freud's own theory? You know, he needs to lie down on the couch himself and get psychoanalyzed. Or uh, postmodernism. A lot of us have a hard time figuring out what postmodernism really is. But it, at the heart of it is the claim that you don't believe what you believe because you're rationally persuaded that it's true, but because of the social groups you belong to. Rationality is swamped by social forces like race, class, and gender. To which the response is, what about your own views? Are you just a mouthpiece for your own race, class, and gender? Or evolutionary psychology, fast growing on the university campus today. The application of evolution to epistemology, to our views of truth. And the idea is that you, you don't believe what you believe because you're rationally persuaded it's true, but because in the Pleistocene age, Certain ideas proved useful for survival. They're in your brain not for their truth value, but for their survival value. To which you say, well, what about your own views? 
is that is that too just a product not of truth but usefulness for survival in every case once they commit uh, the commit once they commit reductionism when you find their reductionism you can see how they reduce the human brain the human mind rationality reason thinking to something less than reason but then it comes back in a circle to bite themselves and discredit themselves because if, as soon as they reduce truth to something less than truth, it undercuts their own claims. So it's astonishing. You can use this with any worldview. Every worldview is going to be reductionistic in some way. And as a result, it will not fit the real world, and it will end up being self-defeating. And you can be absolutely confident of this. Before I started writing Fighting Truth, even after all these years of studying worldview and apologetics, I wasn't quite sure that I, someday I might run into a worldview that I couldn't answer. I might run into some philosophic challenge that I couldn't answer. After writing Finding Truth, I'm convinced that there's no, that, that will never happen. Romans 1 tells wow. me that there will always, you always find their idol. Because what else is there? If you don't have God, if you don't start with God, you will start with something in the created order. What else is there? You can always find their right. idol. It will always be reductionistic. Therefore, it will always, you know, it will always conflict with the real world and will always hold, have an internal con- contradiction. Always. I'm absolutely convinced. <laughs> so I'm much more confident now than I was even before writing Finding Truth. It's, yeah, it's just incredible how powerful the, the, these principles really are. And like you say, you really put the other worldviews to the test. Now, of course, the last one is, I guess, the most important, uh, and that is making the case for Christianity. So you can show where the other worldviews fail, uh, but that's not enough, right? We've got we've to put forth a positive case uh, for Christianity. So talk to us about that. How do we do that? Yeah, you know, that that could be a whole book on its own. So what I did in Finding Truth <laughs> is I limited it, <laughs> I limited it to, um, to to answer showing where non-Christian worldviews themselves admitted that they didn't have answers and that they had to borrow from our Christian heritage. You know, a lot of times people say, "Do you remember that bumper sticker that said Jesus is the answer?" And secular yep. people yep. Answer, said, secular people said, said, well, so what's the question? And there is a problem with Christians answering, an, giving answers to things that nobody's asking the questions for. But if you look at Christ, secular worldviews and see where they themselves admit they don't have answers, then you can be confident that you are answering questions that they themselves recognize, you know, that they that they need something. So here's here's an example. My my favorite example is Richard Rorty. He was—he uh, died a few years ago. Um, was a prominent American philosopher until then, and he was—he was actually called—he um, was a political philosopher, and he was dubbed the philosopher of democracy. But ironically, he literally admitted, and this, uh, as he put it, I don't really have any foundational philosophical basis for human rights. And then he explained in greater detail. He said, look, I'm an atheist, I'm an evolutionist, I'm a Darwinist. And in the struggle for existence, the strong win out and the weak are left behind. 
So that cannot be the basis of universal human rights. So what is? Well, his grandfather was a famous theologian, and he said, well, Christianity is the source of the idea of universal human rights. And so he said, I'm happy to reach over and just borrow from our Christian heritage the notion of human, universal human rights. And he called himself a freeloading atheist. He wow. said, a freeloading atheist like myself are happy to reach over and borrow this element from our, Christian, our Judeo-Christian heritage. So I focus, in, in uh, the last chapter in Finding Truth, I focus on freeloading atheists, on atheists who acknowledge they don't have a Christian, uh, they don't have answers and that they borrow from Christianity. Another one is John Gray, who's a contemporary British philosopher, and he does the same thing. He's a materialist, he's an atheist, and he says, look, if you're, if you're a consistent atheist, you cannot believe in human dignity, you cannot believe in free will, you have, to, you have to accept that we're basically complex machines. And then he says, every secular view of human dignity is a derivative of Christianity. They are borrowing from Christianity. So here are, here are examples. Another one, oh, there's, there's several. Luke Ferry, who's written, a, he's, he's French, and he's written a recent book saying the same thing. He said the origin of the concept of, of universal rights was Christianity. It was Christianity that broke down the hierarchy of, of master-slave, um, uh, ruler, and peasant, and so on, all of these different hierarchies that have been known in history, it, it was the his his words. He said it was the first universalist ethic. So there's several wow. secular people who have who have acknowledged that the only way you get things like human rights is from Christianity. So I made I make a point of going going to those quotes and those thinkers and and saying here's if you're going to start somewhere, let's start. Let's be really relevant by starting with secularists themselves acknowledge that they don't have an answer and that the only way they can get what they themselves want, things like human rights, things like freedom, things like human dignity, the only way they can get those things is by borrowing from Christianity. Very good. Uh, two, two last questions here for you, and really appreciate the, the time that you've spent with us and just been, uh, been really, really good. Uh, the first question uh, would be for those maybe who come across this uh, podcast or maybe they're listening live and, and they really do want to find truth. They've uh, maybe grown up in a Christian home or grown up in a secular home and they're, they really are looking for truth. What would, what, would, what would you tell them? What would you say to that person that is trying to find truth? How would you encourage them? Well, what I like about the the approach in in my book Finding Truth is that it like it um, as I've said a couple times, um, it doesn't presume that you already believe the Bible. I think one of the mistakes right. Christians make is we don't know how to argue outside of what the Bible says. And yeah. a lot of times, Christians, parents, and pastors, in particular, when their kids come with, to them with questions, will say, "Well, the Bible says," and the and the child says but i'm not i don't know if i believe the bible anymore um or um i i've had a lot of i have had a lot of students come to me with stories one of them said i come to my parents with with questions and they say well why don't you just have faith like we do well that didn't answer it 
or um, one an, another kid who was a, who was um, a high school kid who was asking his parents questions about ideas he was exploring, and they would just jump on him argumentatively. They would say, "Well, you can't prove that." He said, "Well, I know I can't prove it. I am thinking through these things, you know, trying to figure out how do I know what's true. You know, like you said, how do I find truth? I need you to think it through with me and show me how to evaluate ideas, not just jump on me, because of course his parents were being somewhat defensive." Um, so what I like with with starting where Paul does in Romans. Remember in Romans 1, he's addressing a congregation that had not heard him speak before. And so he's laying out the case for God in a particularly clear and comprehensive way. And he's starting with general revelation. He's starting with universal human experience instead of starting with the Bible. There are places in the Bible when he when he addresses a Jewish congregation, of course, he's likely to start with the Old Testament and show that Jesus was the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. But starting with with a, a Greek audience, he was more likely to start with universal human experience. How do we know truth? How do we know, as, as just as human beings, how do we know it's true? We don't want to just rely on our own personal experience because our own personal experience is too limited. But let's look at the vast scope of human of human experience. What of cultures of all of all eras and all periods of history? Uh, take take that question of free will. That's one of that's one I was asking when I went to the Labrie. When I first went to Labrie as an agnostic, I was not only a relativist and a skeptic, but I also had come to disbelieve in free will because of my science classes. I had accepted determinism that we're all basically determined uh, by natural forces and have no real free will. And one of the arguments that was raised by the Labrie staff, who'd been trained by Francis Schaeffer, um, was that, well, let's look at human experience. Has any culture ever existed that did not believe in free will? Every culture has had a moral code. Every culture has had a legal code. Every culture has had held people responsible for their choices. If you look at the vast scope of human experience, you've got to realize that we experience ourselves as choosing beings. Your philosophy had better line up with what we know by universal human experience, or it can't be true. And Oh, that was pretty impressive. Let, that's what Paul does in Romans 1. He says, let's look at the vast scope of human experience and say, look what people right. do. They choose, they choose a god. And you test that God against universal human experience, against what we know from creation. You see, people read people read Romans one where it says, you know, um, the evidence the evidence for God is from um, from the created order, and they think, oh, well, that just means the complexity and beauty of nature, and so they look at things like intelligent design and so on, and, and that's great, that's part of it. What they miss though is it also means human beings. Human beings are part of the created order. And we, too, give evidence for God. And so any, any worldview has to fit with who we are as human beings if it's going to be true. So that's, that's where I would start with somebody who's having questions. I would not start with what the Bible says. I would start where Paul did. I would start by looking wow. at the evidence from human nature and from the created order in general. Very good. Second question would be uh, to those Christians who are getting into apologetics and really wanting to study this, um, maybe what, what advice or encouragement could you, could you give us younger 
uh, younger folks in the faith? I think um, the main thing is I think people often get overwhelmed because there is so much now out there, and they think they have to become philosophers overnight. <laughs> yeah, they have to master all these different isms. At least I did. I'm speaking from experience, you you realize. When I went to Libri and I went as an agnostic and I realized, wow, if I'm going to make a decision about whether God is real, I'm going to have to master all of these different isms, go through them all, test them all, and figure out which one is true. Well, that would take a lifetime. Nobody could do that. Right. And that's where finding, finding this strategy from Romans 1 again, has been very, very helpful because it tells you that there's a single strategy you can use for any ism, and it's from, right. it's from Scripture. So if you're already a Christian, you, you, you know that it's reliable. But even if you're not a Christian, these are the basic arguments everyone uses. Everyone tests an idea by, does it fit the real world? Does it hang together logically? Everyone uses those same basic categories of arguments. And so if you master those basic arguments, you can apply them to any ism, and it really simplifies the search for truth. You don't have to master them all ahead of time. You can just master a strategy that you can then apply anywhere. And that, I think that that's very heartening. That's very encouraging to somebody who's starting, especially somebody who's young and starting out, that they don't have to wait until they've mastered the whole world of philosophy out there. They can get started with a single strategy that will empower them to make sense of any ism that they encounter. Yeah, it's it's good because it really gives kind of an outline uh, on how to how to go through these things. Well. Thank you again so much, uh, folks. The book is Finding Truth with Nancy Piercy. And you have a website and, and uh, anything you'd like to share where people can learn more about you and read your other books as well? Well, I do have a website that's just nancypiercy.com. And then my husband has a website called The Piercy Report. And both of them, uh, The Piercy Report is more um, uh, articles and um commentary uh, related to Christian worldview. So either one of those are, might be useful for people who are trying to go further, look at other books that I may have written, and so on. I think com and com. Thank you again so much for coming on. We'd love to have you on again sometime in the future, and uh, really, really appreciate your wealth of knowledge and just uh, sharing with us and taking time out of your day. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it. You had excellent questions, and um, I, I've really enjoyed talking with you. Okay. I will look forward to talking with you again. Thank you. God bless. All right, folks, uh, join us next week as we continue our uh, shows on Theology Matters. I've uh, got a few things lined up in the future. Uh, we're looking at having my good friend Shandon Guthrie, who's a philosopher, uh, teaches down there, I believe, in Las Vegas at the uh, University of Las Vegas, I believe. 
uh, doing a philosophical analysis on Mormonism, looking at the Mormon conception of God, Jesus, salvation, etc. And uh, then we got some shows coming up uh, in the future on intelligent design as well. And look forward to getting uh, hopefully some, some good guests with that as well. Thank you guys for joining us. Thank you again to Miss Piercy. She, again, is just such a wealth of knowledge. I really, really encourage you guys, get her books, Finding Truth, uh, Total Truth, The Soul of Science, um, just, uh, just a wonderful, wonderful, godly uh, woman and a wealth of knowledge. So look forward to having you again next week, and have a great week. God bless.